Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Hey everyone, Ray here with a book recommendation. Red Burning Sky is the engrossing new military thriller based on the true secret mission to rescue hundreds of Allied airmen stranded in war-torn Yugoslavia in 1944. Codenamed Operation Halyard, it's considered one of World War II's least known but most daring and heroic missions. Author and air combat veteran Tom Young has logged more than 5,000 hours flying missions in Afghanistan, Iraq, Bosnia, Africa, and the Far East, and his evocative, riveting saga brings you right into the cockpit. This superbly crafted thriller sweeps from Texas to Italy to daredevil missions across the Adriatic to makeshift airstrips in Nazi-held Serbia. Perfect for fans of films like Where Eagles Dare or The Great Escape, Red Burning Sky from Kensington Books is on sale now everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit TomYoungBooks.com. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 355, interview with Robert Child about his book, Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor winners of World War II. Robert Child, an Emmy-nominated producer and director, is also the author of several history books, including his latest, Immortal Valor, where he tells the story of seven African-American soldiers from the war who, despite their actions of gallantry above and beyond the call of duty, were not awarded the Medal of Honor. In fact, no African-American was awarded this until many decades later. These are their stories. Mr. Child, thank you very much for being with us today. I'm glad to be with you, Ray. For, absolutely. So, first off, let me be painfully obvious by saying that here we are, it's 2022, we're discussing African-Americans being denied recognition of their service to our country, and yet, if they were alive today and they looked around and their, how their descendants are being treated, I don't think they would be too surprised. They might be saddened, but I don't think they would be very shocked. No, I think you're right. Although we have come a long way since the 1940s. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. There's still a way to go, way to go as yes. far as race relations. Yeah. Now, the thing is, when I was reading your book, I mean, uh, both of my parents are from the South. I've spent time in South Carolina, Virginia and Florida. And there was nothing in this book, unfortunately, that I did not hear in the 1970s growing up. So all these expressions and in the attitude, all of that stuff was quite familiar to me. But um, again, you still it's obviously still disheartening to know that this is what these people went through and are still going through. So could you give us an idea of what it was like for black soldiers in the U.S. military uh, before Pearl Harbor? Yeah, before uh, Pearl Harbor, sure. Mm-hmm. That would be World War One and the between war time. Yes, sir. And what uh, in World War One, the black soldiers served mainly with the French, 
Mm. And after that conflict ended in 1918, 1919, there was a, a, a study that came out by the Army War College that mm. was um, was incredible. It was um, I don't know who commissioned it, was but it was a, a study on uh, black soldiers. They called them Negro soldiers. And it was a very racist study that said that black soldiers were not in, as intelligent, they were not as brave, they could not be relied upon. And that came out in 1925 between the world wars. Right. And that really colored the way that the military treated black soldiers. They just took that as gospel. Mm -hmm. And that's how they went into the Second World War, unfortunately. Which, which might lead to the question, I wonder why, with all that racism, they were allowed in the military in the first place, but I guess you legally could not stop them from being in the military. Does that sound right? Yes, that's, that's true, but they were um, relegated to um, rear echelon positions, right. uh, service roles, quartermaster division, things like that. They were not um, allowed on the front lines initially. Gotcha. And as we're going to see in your book, um, all those um, assumptions or attitudes were clearly wrong because these men did some amazing things, but we'll get to that. So I'm going to skip right over a very standard question when it comes to speaking to an author. Why did you write this book? Obviously, it and many others are certainly needed, but I did want to ask, how did this topic come to you? Sure. Well, I'd done uh, an earlier film for National Geographic called The Wear at the Leaven, and I did a book called The Lost Eleven for Penguin Random House on black soldiers in World War II, right. an incident that happened in Werth, Belgium, uh, of a massacre of 11 soldiers during the Battle of the Bulge. Mm. And my research into those projects um, really opened up a window into black soldiers' service in World War II. And I often call it a treasure trove of material that hasn't been told. And... I had this idea in the back of my mind after the Lost Eleven book that I wanted to tell more stories about black service members from World War II. And I looked at the Medal of Honor recipients, and it seemed to me that we didn't know these men beyond their Medal of Honor citations. There simply wasn't enough biographical information. I wanted to know who these men were. So it started as curiosity, and I obviously wanted to bring light to their heroic achievements, but that it was curiosity and, and wanting to know more. Right. So I've been doing the show for quite some time, uh, but I'm only up to the spring of 1942, so the American input into the war is just getting going. But um, I should have been stressing over these years, and I haven't, but I'm certainly going to make up for it today with talking to you about the Double V campaign. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that? Sure. That was prompted in uh, late January of 1942 uh, by a letter from an African-American soldier from, I believe it was Kansas, right. named uh, James G. Thompson. He wrote to a black newspaper in Pittsburgh called the Pittsburgh Courier, um, sort of an op-ed letter which um, expressed the view that many African-American soldiers felt going off to war that... Uh, you know, why should I serve uh, for this country mm -hmm. as half American and, you know, return to a country where I'm still half American? You know, I deserve equal 
you know, equality, equal rights. And that letter really struck a chord um, when it was published in January of 1942 mm -hmm. and became the catalyst for the Double B campaign, which was essentially victory abroad and victory at home. And victory at home meant equality when black soldiers returned home from the war. And that was um, pushed quite heavily by the newspaper and um, other organizations, NAACP, that the you know victory at home was was the way to go. And, and black soldiers, from my research, did have this. Were well aware of this and and had had this in the back of their minds. Right. Yeah. So this is something obviously admirable and something to shoot for. But as as you point out in your book, it's going to be a long time coming. So I just want to say um, just real quick before we go on and we're going to go into some of the specific details of what these men do, uh, what they did to demonstrate their courage. But by the time I finished reading your book. My hands were gripping the book so darn uh, hard. I think my fingerprints have been imprinted into your book. Uh, two, my heart was racing because what these men did, what they faced, what they accomplished, and I'm just talking about combat with, with the enemy, was absolutely incredible. And and lastly, just again, just how sad this entire episode has been. And yet, like we've said, it's ongoing. But um yeah. As I want to go into the details of what some of these men achieved, because again, it was absolutely incredible, very brave, very courageous. Let's focus on three of them so we can kind of drill down into it. Sure. Um, if you could please introduce us to Charles Thomas, a young man just getting out of high school. He's got a promising career, but then as we know, the war is coming on. Sure. Uh, Charles Thomas grew up in the center of Detroit. And went to Cass Tech, was a technical high school uh, focused um, on engineering studies. Mm -hmm. And he was accepted into um, a college in Detroit and was doing very well in, uh, in Detroit mm -hmm. in that college. And his father worked for Ford um, in, uh, in their divisions. And uh, he got his son a job at Ford as a, as a molder, which mm -hmm. was an incredible job at the time in the early 1940s. And there was a, a real renaissance in Detroit um, for the black middle class at this time, due to Henry Ford, actually. Mm -hmm. So he started a very promising career with Ford. And of course, in 1942, uh, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And he, like all other young, Ameri young American men, uh, enlisted right. and went off to um, Battle Creek, Michigan, I don't remember the, the uh, fort name, but trained to be um, actually selected for the officer uh, corps because he had, you know, several years of college behind him in me mechanical engineering and was selected for the officer's corps and trained in Colorado and was assigned to the 614th Tank Destroyer Battalion, mm -hmm. which was a new battalion in 1943 in the Army. Um, which was a combination of two types of units, towed and self-propelled. Right. And he was first assigned to a, a self-propelled, and then uh, that changed into a towed unit. And what made the 614th and all tank destroyer battalions unique was that when they were formed, the Defense Department, uh, as part of their founding charter, Right. said that they had to have black officers. So that's why 
Thomas was able to actually uh, command, assign and be commanded, uh, command a company mm-hmm. in the 614th. And uh, he commanded Charlie Company, uh, 3rd Platoon. And they crossed over to Europe. And um, their, his platoon, 3rd uh, Platoon, was uh, comprised of four M5 howitzers. And um, they were, they, they crossed, you know, they pushed forward towards Germany. Mm-hmm. And they saw their first action in late November of 44, I believe it was, and um, took out an uh, observation post in a church. Right. And he, uh, he showed his bravery uh, on many occasions and uh, um, was a true leader. He was um, very, um, I get the sense he was kind of... Uh, circumspect, very mild-mannered, not mild-mannered, but um, that came up time and time again, but <laughs> you right. can't mild-mannered and also be a commander. <laughs> um, yeah. But he was well-respected by his men right. and very brave. Well, yeah, because on one hand, it sounds like someone in the Army is, you know, thinking a little progressively, hey, we have to have black officers, that's great. Uh, but if you told me that, okay, look, this is a, the difference between World War One and World War Two, uh, besides bigger and faster uh, uh, planes and bombers, uh, is the Germans' Panzers. Uh, we're going to create, you know, essentially anti-tank uh, units, and we want you to be a part of it. Uh, I would be a little nervous going up against Germ- uh, Germany's Panzers, considering everything they were able to achieve before the Americans got into the war. But you're right, they train, they, they become a cohesive unit, and they really have respect um for uh um thomas um is there is there anything specific you'd like to talk about as far as um the moments of bravery when he earned um obviously later on where he earned his uh, his uh, award sure he um uh, early mid-december of 44 he um they were pushing towards the siegfried line right and he was commanding his company and they were assigned to take a town called uh, Kleinbach in on the line. Mm-hmm. And his um, com- his role, his he was part of uh, Task Force Blackshear, mm-hmm. and their role was to draw fire away from the town that was uh, held by the Germans. I believe it was the twenty second twenty second Panzer Division mm-hmm. that held the town and. They were dug in. I mean, they were veterans from North Africa. So, oh, wow. So there's, these weren't the old men and boys, you know, the Volks Grenadiers. These were right. <laughs> hardened German yes. soldiers. And uh, his task force was assigned to take this town. And when it was on a rise, it was up a hill, and it was a foggy morning when they were assigned to attack it. And his commander... Colonel Blackshear brought them up into a valley below the town, and for some reason his colonel paused and was sort of indecisive. And I could never understand the reasons. I couldn't figure out the reasons for that. But um, Thomas took his, uh, he was in an M20 uh, um, command car and drove up beside his commander and said, 
you know, do you want me to take it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> did we do so, it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He volunteered, and that's in, in the record. Wow. That's not in his Medal of Honor citation, but he volunteered to say, do you want me to take it? And uh, I've watched him say, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Please, yeah. <laughs> you know, complete fog, you know, below a valley, Germans were on the high ground. So his role in his unit was to draw fire. And wow. he took half of his um, platoon, which were uh, two guns, up towards, uh, up a hill towards the Germans. Mm-hmm. The Germans were actually anticipating this. They had infantry posted in the woods. They had, M, uh, they had 88s in the town. Right. So he uh, pulled about 700 yards away from the town. So it was in view and then all hell broke loose. His unit was fired on by the 88s, by tanks from the town, attacked by the infantry. They were essentially surrounded. Mm-hmm. And he, he was in his squad car that got hit by an, M, uh, an 88 shell. So, so he was thrown from, from that, wounded. But he said in his um, comments after the war, he survived, that he just had one thought. He had to get the guns in place or they were all dead. So they get the, the, got the guns in place and started firing. They, had, they fired from the machine guns on their M3s, which towed the M5 howitzers, mm-hmm. uh, and they were, um, they were, their fire was extremely accurate. They were able to, to take out some of the guns, um, but they were losing men fast. Right. And suddenly they were attacked from the woods by the company of soldiers, um, the, the German mm-hmm. uh, infantry, Panzer Grenadiers, and uh, they had to swing their guns around towards this infantry. And at the time, his commander, Blackshear, the fog had lifted. He could see through you know, the lifting fog, right. that they were surrounded, they were being attacked, and he commented that it was the most amazing, amazing display, display of bravery he had ever seen. And he immediately set their attached infantry, the 411th, mm-hmm. uh, to go attack the, the attacking Panzer Grenadiers. So they did, they subdued them, mm-hmm. but still... Um, Thomas's unit was taking heavy, heavy casualties, and he didn't want to give up command because there was no one who, in his unit who could take command. Right. And finally, he relented. He sent a private back and said, bring up the other two guns. And this private ran through 100 yards of <laughs> German fire to get, to get his other two uh, M5s up there, right. which they brought up and um, started firing. And after a while, they were out of ammunition. So <laughs> they were reduced to laying on the ground and firing um, carbines right. at, at the enemy. And um, they, uh, there was one gun that, that was able to fire and take out a couple of the 88s. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, they had delayed the Germans and attracted enough attention that the uh, American infantry and tanks had surrounded the town and came in from either side. So that started at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Thomas's action, right. and ended at around 7. He was evacuated um, after he brought up the other two guns. Mm-hmm. 
but he had his unit had fifty percent casualties. And, oh my God! Yeah, and he made a comment in an interview after the war that he knew his role was to draw fire, but he didn't think he'd draw that much fire. <laughs> well, and, that, yeah, I'm. The Germans <laughs> have been at this for years, and the Americans are still learning as they go. Yes, exactly. And um, he was so shot up and bleeding from wounds in the chest, mm-hmm. in the arms, in the legs, that he was finally carted off semi-conscious. And his men thought for sure that he was a dead man, that yeah. he was going to die. Uh, but no, he was sent back to Michigan, uh, first to England, then to Michigan, and recovered in the hospital and was awarded the DSC, Distinguished Service Cross, in the hospital. And when men in his platoon arrived back home and they saw uh, Charles out with his father, they thought they were seeing a ghost. <laughs> right. Yeah, how, cause, but, how do you survive that? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. But what his unit did, um, Charlie Company, 3rd Platoon, was so extraordinary that they were the first black unit to be awarded the presidential unit citation, which is uh, you know, the highest honor a unit can receive. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Right. So that's a great honor, but obviously it came at a great price. So here's Charlie Company, led by Charles Thomas, you know, going up there first, volunteering, um, trying to engage and distract uh, the Germans while, you know, while they're being outflanked. But still, that, that's a heck of a sacrifice to make for, for a local victory. Yes, absolutely. Now, you said at the beginning of this uh, interview um, that a lot of the white or uh, the vast majority of white officers or white um, soldiers, you know, they truly did believe they felt in their bones that the, 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 the blacks just weren't equal to them. They weren't as smart as them. They couldn't fight as well as them. They weren't as brave as them. And I get all that. But in the middle of this action that you just described, there's a little tiny moment that I just want to focus on for a second. So the very first time that Thomas's uh, men come under fire, I think it's what Lieutenant Smith and Stirk, Sturkey, um, yeah. the, the, the men, and, and I can't blame them for this because you can practice all you want, but the first time you encounter live fire, 
it's a whole different world. You know, plans go right out the window. So all of the men start, not all of them, but a lot of the men start running away. And these two guys are like, no, 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 we can't do that because that's what they expect. That's what the white officers expect us to do is to cower and run away from the fighting. Absolutely. That was prior to mm. the action at Kleinbach that was near middle Germany. Mm. And um, they were uh, proceeding forward. You know, resistance was stiffening. The Germans attacked them from the ambushed. Um, it was first platoon of Charlie Company and uh, Sturkey and Smith um, watched the men, you know, running away because they were being fired up upon by mortar and other shells right. and they knew that they couldn't leave the guns there oh, so yes. they corralled them back together and um the men were somewhat embarrassed but uh, <laughs> by running away at the first sign of fire right uh, but sturkey and smith were awarded the um, the silver star for the mm. sack for that yes now as we're going to see um I don't. I, I mean, I'm just going to say maybe there was an unwritten rule about yes, we can give these um, African American soldiers awards, but they can't get the highest award. Maybe because that would put them on par with the white soldiers. Yes, um, there was a study done in at Shaw University in 1993 to look into why no black servicemen were awarded the Medal of Honor. Mm -hmm. And in that study, it was discovered that there was an unspoken, unwritten rule uh, that no black soldier would be recommended for the highest award, the Medal of Honor. That's why most white commanders um, who wanted to recommend their black soldiers for uh, bravery mm -hmm. knew they could not. So they submitted them for the Distinguished Service Cross, which was the second highest award for valor. Right. Because they wanted them to receive something. Exactly. But those officers, those white officers, know they could be jeopardizing their own careers if they put them up for yes. the highest. Okay. So it's all, yeah, politics. So, so as you said, so Charlie Company loses three of its four guns. They have roughly 50% casualties. I mean, if that's not bravery, I don't know what is. Yeah, I agree. And speaking of bravery, the one and only Vernon Baker, could you please introduce us to him? Sure. Vernon Baker uh, survived the war, mm -hmm. and he was the only recipient alive in 1997 to finally receive the Medal of Honor. Mm -hmm. He grew up in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and uh, he trained in Fort Hukachuka, Arizona, and their unit became part of the 92nd Division. And he traveled. A lot of the, that was a place for black soldiers. Mm -hmm. That was, um, a lot of the soldiers there became the 93rd that went to the Pacific. But his unit uh, joined, uh, became an advanced unit, actually, um, of Ned Almond's Corps, uh, right. General Almond's Corps. And he went over to Italy. Uh, first to Naples and then uh, traveled up to um, the Gothic line, which was Hitler's, as you know, you know, final line in the sand in Italy. Mm -hmm. And um, he fought, he was, um, he was sort of the executive officer. He, he was doing the, uh, the duties of a company commander, but he knew that they would never award him that that 
position. Right. Um, but his commander initially was wounded and taken away, and he he served as a company commander. And uh, then three white officers were brought in. They were tasked to um, take a German stronghold, uh, a castle mm-hmm. on a mountain. And, uh, and I, I can't, uh, it's Castle Agnolofini. Agno, Agno yeah. Uh, that was my if that's guess. how you pronounce it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, the white officers that, that joined his company, his, mm-hmm. his commanding officer, Captain Runyon, didn't have any combat experience. Oh. And by the time he arrived in, in the unit, uh, Vernon was very well um, seasoned in combat. Mm-hmm. And uh, their task, after their entire regiment wasn't able to take this uh, castle stronghold, mm-hmm. was to take the stronghold. <laughs> right. Oh. And uh, Vernon... Um, was sort of put into a position where he had to act. Mm-hmm. Uh, Captain Runyon joined them. Uh, Vernon's um, platoon had advanced uh, the farthest of any platoon had. Right. And they uh, had taken out uh, machine gun nests, mortar positions. And finally, when they got up 300 yards away from the, the castle, which was separated by a huge ravine, um, and they were deliberating, you know, what to do, Right. they were uh, attacked by mortars uh, by the Germans from the castle. Mm-hmm. And Captain Runyon decided that was his time to uh, exit and hide in the shed. Right. And, <laughs> oh. and uh, what had pre- precipitated this was uh, they were looking down on a trail that led up to the castle, and a German uh, came out of a dugout onto the this trail mm-hmm. and they were and Runyon and, and Baker were just standing there talking and they look down they, they see the German and he turns around and looks at them and he tosses a potato masher grenade up oh, towards them right instinctively and it's oh, wow. uh, and at that moment Captain Runyon shrieks uh, throws his arms in the air Vernon already had his rifle uh, up and aimed at the German mm-hmm. It almost knocked his rifle out of his hand. He grabbed it and shot the German twice. The potato masher landed five feet from them and didn't go off. And oh, uh, my goodness. but that was enough for the for the captain. Right, he's done. <laughs> yeah. So what Vernon proceeded to do was he had his uh, his platoon stay back, and he went down on the trail, mm-hmm. and he. He had a. He exchanged guns with his first sergeant uh, for a Tommy gun, mm-hmm. and took extra uh, grenades and picked up German grenades, and uh, took out a series of dugouts. Just threw grenades in. You know, picked his head in, right. um, shot him, shot him up, and he took out uh, a number of German positions. Mm-hmm. And they went back to his platoon and said, um, you know. We're going to stay, and, and I'm sure reinforcements uh, are going to join us. Um, we're going to stay and hold this position. His men wanted to leave. Yeah. You know? yeah. But uh, they uh, they decided to stay because he felt like, you know, Runyon would probably, since he was, he had told him, told Vernon, I'm going to go back and get, you know, 
backup. Right. Um, but they decided to stay because they, they were there and they had gotten the furthest. It turns out yeah. well, that um, Runyon went back and told his commander, regimental commander, that their unit had all been wiped out. There was no reason to send up reinforcements. Oh, my God. Yeah, so they're they're waiting for assistance because they know if they if the um, if uh, Vernon and his men backtrack, they're just going to have to fight again to retake that same territory. And the, yes, and I remember if I remember correctly from your book, I mean the Germans weren't stupid. They made so there's one path to get to this place. They've got it heavily, you know, covered. And so yeah, there's going to be a lot of casualties if you have to come back. But for and and the part that really got me was here's Vernon. He's got battle experience. He is not technically in charge, but you and I know he's in charge. And yeah. he has to say to this Runyon, yeah, no, I think it's a good idea for you to go back and go get his help. He was trying to help this white officer save face. And then the guy does the ultimate betrayal by going, oh, they're all dead. There's no reason to send reinforcements. Yeah. I mean, just yeah. cowardly. The, the ultimate insult. Yes, yes. I agree. And um, Vernon and his men were attacked by mortars and, um, the Germans actually sent out a phony Red Cross um, um, mm-hmm. unit to, you know, pick up, you know, some of the wounded. And right. they were so far ahead of the line mm-hmm. that it didn't smell right. Vernon knew that there no Red Cross was, <laughs> was going to be up. No man's land. Yeah. Germans disguised as Red Cross, you know workers and uh, they actually had a hidden machine gun under one of the stretchers which they pulled out and uh, vernon's unit didn't believe that they were red cross workers anyway so they had their guns already trained on them so they took out this unit but after that incident vernon felt like it was time to go so we've done enough yeah we've done enough so we decided to head back down the mountain and back down the mountain they encountered another um a machine gun nest that they hadn't uh, come across before. Right. They took it out with the uh, white phosphorus, phosphorus grenades. Um, they, their medic who was still, you know, attending to the wounded was shot by a sniper mm-hmm. on the way down. And um, finally they made their way down and Vernon's Vernon started out with 26 men and he lost 19. So another sacrifice, another sacrifice was, I'm sorry, let me just ask real quick. Was this the part? I'm, Cause I'm, I don't want to mess this up because this was, um, um, Vernon's incredible moment. Is he like crawling on the ground or he's very low while some, one of his men is shooting just to keep the, the machine gun nest or whatever busy. So he can literally cl- yeah. crawl as close as he can and keep throwing in grenade. And he does this several times. Yes. He, he does it twice. They oh take out, yeah. They take out the first uh, machine gun nest they encounter, and um, he set up a sort of a, a routine with his first sergeant with the, with the Tommy gun, where he'd shoot over his head, and Vernon would crawl towards the, you know, the machine gun nest, and you know, uh, let off the the white phosphorus grenade, which is, you know, burns at twenty seven hundred degrees centigrade. So these men were skeletons, you know. <laughs> And so, the, you know, he came back, it worked, and they went further down the mountain, and they encountered another machine gun nest. And uh, Vernon and his first sergeant looked at each other, and they said, well, it worked the first time. <laughs> Do it again. 
did the same thing. Yeah. And then continued on. And when they finally reached the road, Mm -hmm. Vernon just lost it. He just, you know, vomited through his legs and just knelt down and and was just exhausted and um, kind of pulled himself together. And that's when he went to his regimental commander's headquarters and, and found out that Runyon had told him that there was no need to send reinforcements up there. They'd all been wiped out. Right. And I, I can't, <clears throat> I can't uh, describe how much I would have to trust you for me to say, hey, I want you to shoot right over my head while I'm crawling. You keep them busy. I mean, that's just that, that teamwork and that trust and that yeah. professionalism. It's, it's very impressive. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and there's a part, and, and, I'll, and I don't want to say too much because I I'd certainly want to leave a decent amount of material for the, uh, uh, for the listeners, but there's a part where Vernon has to talk to General Allman, uh, who's, who's one of MacArthur's guys. Not the greatest tactician, strategist, or human being in the right. world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's another battle that Vernon's got to deal with. Um, so was, was, uh, Vernon injured during this? Um, I don't think so. I can't remember. No, he okay. wasn't. Just, again, absolutely incredible for everything that he had just done. Um, so for the next person, could you please introduce us to Reuben Rivers? Sure. Reuben Rivers was from Tecumseh, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. which is uh, oil country, uh, Indian country. Mm-hmm. He was half Cherokee. He had two brothers that also served in the war, and he um, became part of, he enlisted and in, in was drafted and went down to Camp Claiborne, Louisiana, mm-hmm. and uh, joined the 761st Tank Battalion, which um, was an all-black tank unit that trained at Camp Claiborne, and um it was, um, I say in the book, that uh, they were given every disadvantage. The, the 761st was, their camp was, Camp Claiborne was, was a modern, you know, picture of efficiency. But the, the black camp was back in the swamp, mm-hmm. in a former swamp, next to the sewage treatment plant. Right. And that's where they trained. Jeez. And they first trained on Stuart tanks, and then they trained on uh, Sherman tanks. Mm-hmm. And um, they went over to uh, Europe, and he was a first sergeant in the um, in the unit. And he was sort of a stoic figure, very brave, mm-hmm. uh, fearless. And his captain, his commander was Captain David Williams. And the first incident where Williams saw that Reuben was different was when they were um, following the infantry uh, into um, uh, into an attack on a German position. Right. And they came under mortar, small arms, machine gun fire, and there was a, a, a blockage on the road, a road, roadblock of a mined tree trunk right. that stopped the column dead in their tracks and they couldn't go anywhere and they were sitting ducks. Right. So... What Reuben did, he realized the situation. The infantry was pinned down. He took his tank and and wheeled it around his commander and to the front and jumped out of his Sherman, tied his uh, steel tow cable to the mine tree. It was full of, you know, mines. Right. And um, 
all under doing this all under heavy fire, exactly. small arms, mortar fire. The Germans could see him, and they started training their, you know, their mortars on his position. Mm-hmm. Jumped back in his tank and pulled this tree trunk off the road, right. which was incredibly brave, and uh, allowed the column to move forward. For that action, uh, Ruben was awarded the Silver Star. I, and yeah. Go ahead. I, I just have to ask real quick, as as he because obviously, I mean, I don't think that's specifically in the army manual. He just kind of figures out what to do. And there's someone who's watching, and one of the officers, and maybe it's Williams, I'm not sure, but someone's watching what he's doing, and they're like, what the heck is going on? And then when they yeah. figure out what he's doing, the the best line of your entire book, I grew up with, in the military. My father was in the Air Force for 25 years, um, where cussing is, is normal. Uh, someone sees what he's doing, he goes, Rivers? You beautiful son of a bitch. And yeah. I just laughed out loud. So it, it's intelligent. Why didn't I think of it? And it got the job done all at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, and, and they realized that. And right. was, I, I was so happy that he was recognized for it at the time. Yes. And uh, he, he became Captain Rivers, you know, lead tank. He was his fearless fighter from Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And um, he led the unit into uh, <clears throat> territory that had, you know, had been unscouted, and they were taking these towns out. Um, and as they moved further um, east, they kept meeting heavier and heavier resistance. And Reuben was commanding a tank, um, uh, two tanks, mm-hmm. uh, a tank uh, unit. And uh, he was leading through a town, leading the the company through a town and his tank hit a teller mine that was buried in a railroad crossing and this blew up his the bottom side of his tank Mm -hmm. blew the tracks off and he became uh, injured from this explosion right and uh, you know hobbled out of the tank it it completely spun the tank around and um, he had a gash in his thigh you know down his leg and uh, the medic was brought in and Captain Williams said, "Well, you you know you're you gotta evacuate. You know it's time right. to time to leave." And he refused. He said, "No, I'm not going anywhere." Yeah, and just, uh, yeah. he he pulled himself up and hobbled over to another tank. <laughs> right? Got up on it, told the, the commander of that tank to get out. He does, and Reuben gets in. <laughs> wow! Wow! And Williams and the men just watch him in disbelief again, and uh, and Williams gets on the radio and asks him again, "Are you are you sure you're okay?" And he, he almost in, in anger says, "Yeah, I told you I'm okay. Let's go." <laughs> so he's got a bandage around a big gaping hole in his thigh, a tear, if you will. And he's like, "You know, nope. Let's, we we got a job to do. Let's keep right. going." Exactly. And they they enter another town. Well, they move forward where um, Ruben takes out a, a German Tiger tank at Point Black Range, mm-hmm. and uh, they continue on to another town. By this time, you know, the Germans knew they were essentially coming because right. they were creating havoc, and uh, they were. Um, Ruben was assigned in the front again uh, in this one particular town, and they came under heavy fire. Mm-hmm. And they had been warned by the commander they had joined with that the Germans had tank destroyers, 75-millimeter tank destroyers, mm-hmm. in the town. And uh, Reuben was in the lead, 
and he radioed back to Captain Williams that he saw the tank destroyer and he was going to take it out. So he went forward and you know started firing, but the tank destroyer, the gun was um, was trained on his tank and took his tank out. It, right. it blew his tank apart, and and Reuben was killed instantly. Right. And, Williams didn't initially know this had happened because it was so far ahead of the rest of the unit and there was no fog um, Mm -hmm. that uh, he couldn't believe that Reuben uh, was killed in action. And um, he was devastated, Captain Williams. Yeah, because he could have ordered or he did semi order him to go back and and Reuben just wouldn't. He's like, no, you know, he, he got, you know, he was insubordinate. He said, no, I'm staying. Yeah, yeah, his wound uh, got progressively painful as it continued forward, and the medic came up again and uh, discovered that gangrene was setting in. Right. And, um, you know, Reuben said, uh, Reuben refused because Williams said, look, you know, you got to go back home. When we cross over the river, the 11th Panzer Division is there, and I don't know how long it's going to take to get you you know, evacuated, right. and he refused. And he said, uh, "No, you're going to need me." And then, yeah. you know, the next action, he he was killed in action. Right. And Williams was so struck by his bravery that he insisted. He met with the the new commander of the 761st because their commander was in uh, wounded, mm-hmm. and he insisted that he submit. Reuben for the Medal of Honor, and his commander was sort of yeah. <laughs> surprised, and he says, "Well, write something up, yeah. and I'll see what I can do." But Williams obviously knew that most white commanders in in the war right. were submitting their black soldiers who performed, you know, above and beyond the call of duty mm-hmm. for the Distinguished Service Cross. But he refused to do that. He submitted him for the Medal of Honor. And for the for the decades after the war, he pressed Reuben's case right. until he saw in he cooperated with the Shaw study mm-hmm. in uh, the early '90s, which was uh, evaluating the black so- soldiers, distinguished service cross recipients, uh, to be elevated to the Medal of Honor. And uh, Williams became Reuben's true advocate because. Reuben was the only one out of the seven who was not awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. He was awarded the Silver Star. Uh-huh. And Williams was pressing Reuben's case because saying how extraordinary it was. Mm-hmm. And Reuben became part of the nine uh, black soldiers who were submitted to the army from the study uh, for consideration of the Medal of Honor. And Reuben was awarded the Medal of Honor in 1997. And Captain Williams was actually there on hand to witness uh, the awarding of that medal to his sister. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Right. Now, what makes all everything that you just said even more tragic was and we're just going to go back a little bit when um, when uh, Rubens was training in Louisiana, there had been a race riot because after all, this is Louisiana where, you know, the, these GIs are like white GIs. They've got some money in their pocket. They're they're young. They want some they want to blow off steam and they want to have fun. Not exactly welcomed in the towns uh, around the camp. No, no, there was uh, shortly before um, Ruben arrived at Camp Claiborne. There were two camps there. There was Camp Livingston and Camp uh, Claiborne. Right. There was a, uh, that were near to a town called Alexandria, Alexandria, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And in January of 1942, a race riot erupted. It's called the Lee Street Riot. Right. You can look it up. It was um, it was started by um, the a civilian police officer asking a black soldier about why he was talking with a white woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, things got a little you know, heavy-handed, sure. and um, the black officer decided to take this, this GI, black GI, into custody. Mm-hmm. And the black soldier, seeing this, coming out of the, the bars and the movie theater there, weren't going to take this because... Um, you know, the soldier wasn't doing anything. Right. So it erupted into a race riot um, between black and white soldiers, where by um, a study was done mm-hmm. by a professor at a university in Louisiana, where it was covered up. But in fact, there were 11 to 15 black soldiers that were killed in this race riot that was covered up at the time. Right. Uh, so this town was just you know, raw right. uh, from this race riot. And it was adjacent, essentially adjacent to where Ruben trained. So diametrically opposed to this in, in a lot of ways, not perfectly, but, you know, we're talking about Abel Company, uh, uh, Ruben's company. One of the reasons they are where they are is because General Patton is asking for more tankers. Uh, yes. He's like, you know, I've got to have these people. And he has a, he has a brilliant attitude. I don't care. And I'm not, I'm going to keep it clean because we are talking about General Patton. I don't care what color they are. I need someone to provide the service because my men are getting shellacked by the Panzers. Patton had a need and he didn't care about the race at that moment. Yes. Yeah. The, the unit, the 761st was almost overtrained. Mm-hmm. They trained them, you know, during the Louisiana maneuvers, which are right. famous, and um, they were um, a crack unit. Mm-hmm. But the, the attitude in the unit was they were never going to see combat. They right. were just going to train around in Louisiana until the end of the war. Nothing was going to happen. Right. And um, Patton, you know, he was losing men and, and tanks. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't, yeah, you're exactly right. I don't care what color they are. I need tankers. Yeah. So he called them up directly. And he um, actually addressed them when they got over to France. Yes, uh, uh, you can. You, if you want to give him more information, you can. But that was a an incredible uh, part of the book, and it made me love Patton just a little bit more <laughs> in that moment. 
Um, so let's let's kind of um, begin to to close this out. Can you give us a little bit more information about Vernon Baker after the war and some of the things that he has to go through? Uh, Vernon Baker, yeah, he um, he stayed in in the war, mm-hmm. and uh, he, well, he stayed in the military, right. and uh, he actually joined the eighty second Airborne and jumped out of airplanes. Wow, and um, joined. Um, went up to Kentucky uh, when uh, the Korean War conflict broke out mm-hmm. and became an officer of a company. He became the first off- black officer of a company. Wow. An integrated company. Right. And he stayed in the service through um, the Vietnam War. I believe it was in 1967 or 1968. Mm-hmm. He served until. And uh, the reason he got out of the war he said, was because, you know, the drugs and the violence were just too much. It, it just, right. it, it just became, you know, too crazy for him. So he felt like it was time to leave. And he joined the uh, Red Cross and worked with the Red Cross after the war. Okay. Moved to Idaho. Right. And, uh, and hunted and uh, lived in a cabin. Mm, just a, a average, humble guy who was a hero when he needed to be, but he probably didn't see it like that. He, he said we had a job to do. And in his own words, he said, you know, war is not honor. And he had hoped that no one ever in the future had to receive the Medal of Honor. So. Yes. A very worthy goal. Yeah. Now, now, as you say in your book, over just over one million African Americans served in the military in World War II, but only seven have been awarded the Medal of Honor um, from Clinton. Is there any chance? Uh, this was nineteen ninety-seven, I think. Was there any? Is there any chance that we may see future awards um, for these troops who fought in the World War II? Yes, uh, there is an excellent chance. Mm. There are two. Um, black soldiers under consideration right now right. with online petitions. And those are Dory Miller, who served in the Pacific, and Waverly Woodson, who served um, in the 320th uh, Barrage Balloon Battalion uh, on D-Day. And I'll talk a little bit about these men because I, I hope people go and find these uh, petitions. They're easy to find. Please. And um, Waverly Woodson served as a medic in that unit, the 320th. And he was only the, one of the few medics on the beaches the first day, at, you know, on, at Normandy. Right. And um, I believe he was in Omaha, but I may be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but he served for 30 hours, uh, and it's been documented that he treated over 200 men wow. and attended to their wounds. And after 30 hours, he finally collapsed. Yeah. He just... He couldn't, he was done. Right. And, um, you know, due to his service, over 200 men or thereabouts um, survived their wounds. Mm-hmm. There's a petition right now uh, for um, his being recognized with the Medal of Honor. And I think that's very close to being um, passed or put forward. Good. The other soldiers, uh, Dory Miller, Mm-hmm. And he served in on the West Virginia, in uh, the Pacific, 
during the attack on Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. and he was a messman third class. He was worked in the kitchen. And <laughs> what he did was um, his ship was attacked, obviously, as all the others were in, in the harbor. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came up and started helping evacuate the wounded. He evacuated, helped his captain who was seriously wounded um, off the ship. And um, he saw that there was no one manning the 50 caliber because, you know, their gunners were also wounded. Right. So he jumped on the 50 caliber and it was estimated he took out three to four Japanese zeros wow. during the attack. Mm-hmm. And he had never fired a 50 caliber machine gun in his life. <laughs> and, I guess, yeah, yeah. And uh, he was very humble about it in uh, interviews that I read that uh, he said he just pulled the trigger and kept firing. And, uh, yeah. and he used to go hunting in Texas. He, he was from the Waco area. Ah. And what is ironic about that mm-hmm. is he did receive the, the Navy Cross. He was awarded the Navy Cross from Admiral Nimitz. Um, but what is ironic about that is the captain of that ship of the West Virginia, mm-hmm. who uh, Dory Miller helped bring out on a stretcher, was awarded the Medal of Honor. But oh, Miller right. wasn't. Right. So think about that. Yeah, it's obvious. Uh, two different standards. Yeah. The proper phrases. Um, so, Mr. Child, thank you very much. This was a very powerful book, a very powerful experience reading it. And again, I was impressed and saddened and everything else all at the same time. It was a, it was a roller coaster of a ride. I do want to tell everybody else that you have, and you mentioned this earlier, uh, you have two other books that they might be interested in. The Lost Eleven, The Forgotten Story of Black American Soldiers Brutally Massacred in World War II. And the other thing that I've already picked up is uh, the audiobook D-Day in 90 Minutes. Mr. Yes. Mr. Child, thank you very much for this book, and thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.